Hey everyone, this is Damon. Just want to give you a quick heads up that this episode will be about the Amazon Prime series Swarm, and the entire episode will be a spoiler. Okay. Also, trigger warning because there are themes of violence mentioned throughout this episode. I remember we were supposed to do a thing together. Yeah. A couple years ago, and you ditched me. You got a last minute invite to a mega stars party. Yes. I would have ditched me too. I'm gonna be honest with you. Like, I'm not flaky. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of things I would like straight up ditch somebody for, but I was like, I gotta go to this party. Yeah, and it wasn't. <laughs> and, 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 um, you gave me a heads up. Yeah. And I remember telling my wife, and she's like, Yeah, nigga, I would have ditched you too. Fuck out of here. So welcome back, everyone, to Stuck with Damon Young, the show where if we ask you, who's your favorite artist, and you don't have the right answer, holy shit, I'm being attacked, help me, someone. Swarm, the Amazon Prime limited series about an obsessive fan who becomes a serial killer, has captured and polarized this audience in a way that few recent shows have. And to speak on some of the thematic touch points and through lines of that show, I'm joined by TV writer Kara Brown, who was a supervising producer, also a head writer, and also has a cameo <laughs> on the show. And then for Dear Damon, New York Times bestselling author Basi Ekby joins me to help advise someone on how to deal with their racist in-laws. All right, y'all. Let's get it. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Kara Brown, friend, writer, supervising producer, and also star of <laughs> Swarm, the Amazon Prime Limited series. Kara, what's good? How you doing today? You know, I'm all right. I'm pretty good. All right. So want to talk to you about Swarm. Yeah. Which is the uh, the Amazon Prime series that features a, a stand of a Beyonce-like character. A pop star. Yes, a pop star, <laughs> right, who ends up becoming a serial killer. Well, the there's the obsessive fan of the pop star who becomes a serial Yes, fan. yes, the obsessive. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. producing me. It's almost Kara. like I wrote on the show. It's almost <laughs> like I was involved in this. Yeah. So the obsessive stan of a pop star who becomes, mm-hmm. e- e- you know what, even that word stan, like I, I think mm-hmm. that. We presume that there are certain words that are part of the zeitgeist that everyone has a handle on and understands. Stan comes from the Eminem song, Stan. And again, it's been 20 years since that song, so there are probably people who have no idea where that word comes from. But that Mm -hmm. word comes from a song that Eminem created. His greatest contribution to the culture Mm -hmm. is this song, right? And it's the best song by a white rapper ever. It's not even close. (laughs) And it's about... An obsessive stan, an obsessive fan of Eminem who ends up killing himself and the mother of his unborn child, I think. Yeah. And who is just named Stan and is obsessed with an Eminem, like basically with Eminem and like writing Mm -hmm. all these letters. And so the guy's name is Stan, which is truly just how we got 
Stan. Mm-hmm. And I feel like because it sounds like fan, people probably think it's some sort of, you know, like offshoot of that. But it's like literally just because the guy's name was Stan. Yeah. Do you have any relationship with Stanham yourself? Like, has there ever been an artist, not even right now at your age, but as a kid, as a teenager, that you were a literal Stan over? I don't think I've ever dipped into that a super deep level of standum. Like I am fans of people. I've been fans of their work. I think the more that I work in Hollywood, obviously the further away you get from that, because they just, it's like, it's weird to stand people you work with, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, to um, And you just start to see like them as individuals. It's like, oh, I'm working with people that maybe I was like a fan of and like they are great and talented, but they are also like regular people, you know, like someone like Donald, where it's like, obviously I was like a big fan of Donald and then now I know him well. So it's not, there's just no way you're going to have the same kind of relationship. Um, But yeah, I don't, I, you know, I did like people, but the type of fandom that the show is getting into, um, no, that is like foreign to me. And I think part of it too is because I began my career on the internet. And so in no way am I saying that like I had stands, um, but you know, writing for Jezebel and you had fans and you had people who would comment a lot. And um, I very quickly developed a bit of a contentious relationship with, <laughs> with, um, with all of them I, and all I, of that. I remember. I remember. Yeah. Cause it's, yeah. it's, it's weird and it's invasive. And like, you know, I remember one of the writers, you know, like she has her full name, And so on her byline, she used her full name and we call her by her nickname because we know her. And I remember she would talk about like when commenters would call her by her nickname and it drove her crazy because it's like, you don't know this person. And this is such a small scale compared to actual celebrities and pop stars and things like that. So yeah, I feel like I've, I've mostly just been a observer. Yeah. And, and a couple of things to the Donald that cares referring to as Donald Glover for those of us yes. who are not on a first name basis Sorry, sorry. With, with Donald Glover. Okay. So of the show and also the term like parasocial relationship became almost cliche, particularly after what's his name, John Mulhaney. What, what's his, you know, the, the comedian Oh yeah, John, who, yeah, that is where, yeah. Like he left his wife and ha- yeah, yeah, yeah. He left his wife for Olivia Munn. Olivia Munn, yeah. yeah. And they had a baby and people yeah. freaked out because he is this sort of like, quote unquote, nice guy. He was mm-hmm. like a real wife guy too. Like he used to talk about his wife a lot and people lost their minds that this person they don't know might make um, personal decisions about their personal life that are not directly in line with how these people who don't know him view him. Yeah. And and so that word, the parasocial, you know, thing yeah. became a thing for about like six or seven months. Um, or, you know, it, it got to the point where I just got tired of seeing it, got tired of hearing mm-hmm. it. Um, and, you know, I've also had a relationship with some types of fans that have, that has been like that, where people just presume that because you are a public figure and you write online that they not just know you, but have an access to you, you know, and, and sometimes that access would, would even be, there would be a presumed in-person access mm-hmm. um, where people will just approach you, you know, like I'm, I'm with my kids and people will come up mm-hmm. people on the street and want to talk about things like, yo, I'm, I mean, I, I appreciate, you know yeah. what I mean? The support and the fandom, but you know, I'm, I'm doing something else right now. And I'm literally in the yeah, middle yeah. of the street, yeah. <laughs> right? Can you at least wait yeah. till I get on the sidewalk? And so, and again, this is on a much, much smaller scale than someone like a, someone like a Beyonce or someone like a Nicki Minaj or someone, you know, who, who is, you know, that stratosphere of, um, of superstar would receive, you know, also professional athletes, you know, get this sort of treatment too. And I'm bringing this up because of the way that swarm ended Mm-hmm. You know, and and again, this show has a very obvious serility, mm-hmm. right? Where it doesn't necessarily exist in a parallel universe, but mm-hmm. it does not exist on the Earth that we currently inhabit. Like, there's a different Earth. It's like Earth one. Well, there's, 2. there's. I, I, I think of it as like it's Dre's Andrea's mind. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's her version of reality. And I'll also say this, like. You know, when I talk about the show, I'm talking about my personal interpretation of it. And like, Mm -hmm. obviously, like I was there and I helped create it. But, you know, like that's sort of the thing with art where like 
the way that even I see something and the way Janine, who's the co-creator of the show with Donald Glover, like in the way Donald sees it, like they can all be a little different. Um, so specifically too, when I'm talking to the show, I'm like, this is how I have like interpreted all of this. Um, mm-hmm. so to me, it was about Dre's new reality once she kind of snaps. And Janine neighbors also, again, Kara yes. knows everyone. I know. I, there's like my coworkers. Get out of here. That's like this is. Yeah, sir. I you know. I should say their full name. Janine Neighbors, very talented co-creator of the show, showrunner. Yes, yes. Um, and so I and I guess I just bring that point up because you know, in um, I think episode three or four, which he's involved with the cult, the Billy Eilish cult. What was the name of the cult? Again, Nexium was the cult that we, you know, talked a lot about. And it also kind of lines up like that's the thing with the show where it is coinciding with real events, like mm-hmm. things that actually happen. And so when we had done the math, like it's it was before Nexium blew up when everyone like knew it was a cult. So in our minds, it was like still at this kind of you know, um, underground thing, you know, with the branding, because that was a big thing with Nexium. Um, mm-hmm. You see Billy and the other girls are branded. Um, Ava is her character in the yeah. show. Um, so, yeah, that was our whole. And Billie Eilish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm shocked that that secret, like, lasted as long as it did, to be honest. Like, I could not believe that it uh And she it was great. Didn't really, like. She's she amazing. was really like I for her, especially for it being her first acting role. Yeah. Like she, yeah. she was amazing. She was amazing. And like against Dominique, who is just fucking incredible. Yeah. Um, to like be able to meet her. Um, because Dominique is just so, so, so good. Mm-hmm. Um, I just like the performances in the show were were really impressive. I want to talk really quickly about Dominique. Um, because as you're watching this show, you just can't help but be blown the fuck away by just how amazing she is on screen. And, you know, that, that last episode where she strangles, uh, her girlfriend and she's crying and she's not even making eye contact because this is the first murder that we see. It's the most intimate one, but it is also painful because in that episode, you could see, oh, she finally has the loving potential in-law she has the loving girlfriend who isn't maybe should have done some more betting but you know that's that, that's fine <laughs> all right yeah right. but um how is it to to write with someone or write for someone who is i guess such a star basically yeah so when we started writing she was not yet cast um so that's another oh, thing that like people okay. don't realize with TV, like, especially in a more kind of, again, traditional TV world, you've, like, written a pilot, you know, for ABC, and then they go shoot it, and you've cast the pilot, and then they'll pick it up for, like, a a season order. So then you would go write the rest of the season, and you already know who the cast is. Or, like, when I was on Grownish, it was a spinoff of Blackish, so you knew at least Yara was going to be in the show. Um, And, uh, uh, so that is that is often how it works. But in the streaming world where, um, you know, shows are getting series orders and you write them and then you go shoot them afterwards, as opposed to writing and shooting at the same time, where like you've already written a few episodes, you start shooting the show and then you're simultaneously in production and writing with these other models you write the show and then they go make it. You don't have to cast anything until you're ready to go shoot it. Um, So we had talked about a lot of actresses, um, not a lot, but we, you know, we would like think of names of people who we thought might be good as we were writing it. And then Dominique has told this story where they reached out to her about playing Marissa. And she was like, no, I want to play, I want to play Dre. I Uh think I can do it. And she got that part and is incredible. And, um, you know, I think like, I imagine as an actor, um, for a black female actress, like you're getting kind of the same shit, you know, like, okay, you're going to play a therapist or you're going to play the friend or whatever. And something that's just so out of something. Yeah. All the, all the black women judges that apparently are like (laughs) in charge of this whole country. 
you know, something that's just so out of the box and different, um, I imagine. And I think for her was really exciting as an actor. And like, she just squeezed everything out of that role Mm -hmm. that she could. Um, but I think, you know, like she's incredible. I think Chloe does such a good job. Danson's really great. The talent in the show is I think like self-evident. Yeah. And so that episode, you know, she kills, Mm-hmm. At least two um, of yeah. the members of the cult, right? Kills the yeah. character and kills someone else. Yeah. And I feel like in the real world, someone like her, mm-hmm. when they also already knew her name mm-hmm. and did such a violent, bloody thing, would have been caught. Like, you just can't be killing yeah. white you know, um, influencers, <laughs> right? Yeah. With with IG accounts and TikToks and, and being able to go free for the next, what, year and a half, basically. Sure. But like, here's the thing. And like, I would say to you just generally around this show, I would invite everyone to like chill out a little bit and like have some fucking fun because it's entertainment. It's meant to be entertaining. It's a comedy, you know, it's like a dark comedy. It's meant to be funny. It's meant to be fun. And so like, sure, maybe would she have been caught? Um, And like, ultimately she is caught, but it's like, I think that's the interesting thing about, I think one of the things we talked about when we were like talking about a black female serial killer is that there like really haven't been any. So people don't even assume that that's who they're looking for. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the idea behind episode six with the detective where the only person who could put together that it's a black woman is another black woman. So like there's a world right where, you know, they kill these girls and like, that's just fully not who anyone is looking for. Mm. Um, so I think that was part of it. But I think also, like, you know, it's like a television show. <laughs> she yeah, went on yeah. and did, and did other things. And, after, and, you know, and, like, after that, um, you know, not long after that, she she looks different. Like, she eventually, you know, she goes home, mm. and then she kind of, she um, runs into the parents, and then she kind of goes into, like, a transformation. Yeah. I mean, it's not a... It's not a critique of the show. It was just, you know, acknowledging the fact that most of the shows that we watch exist in a version of reality that's not one-to-one. Yeah. You know, it it shares a lot of same elements, but it's just not like a one-to-one. Like, this is the actual real Earth that we exist on. It's a a different version of that. I was bringing that point up because the way it ended, Mm -hmm. you know, and we were talking Mm -hmm. about, like, the parasocial relationship and, you know, how, you know, Dre very obviously had this love, infatuation, affection, you know, whatever word you want to use to describe Mm -hmm. her feelings for Nyjah, right? And and the Mm -hmm. series ends with her imagining what it would have been like if she actually met her, you know, the embrace, Mm -hmm. you know, her just Mm -hmm. whisking her away with her in the van with the security and just it ending Mm -hmm. in her bosom like that and her finally getting that love that she had been searching for. Yes. Um, I guess throughout her life, basically. Well, yeah. And then importantly, you see that Nyjah's face is now Marissa's face. Mm-hmm. Um, so like her obsession with Nyjah is so clearly tied to her obsession with her sister, with her friend Marissa, mm-hmm. and that they've become kind of one in the same in her mind where she's murdering people, you know, with our now like iconic, like who's your favorite artist question. And to me, it's less about, oh, you don't like Nyja and more that if you don't like Nyja, you are like disrespecting Marissa. Mm-hmm. And that's what's actually fueling a lot of this. So what goes into creating a character like that? You know, just from a writer's perspective, because, you know, you have most of the shows that or I guess most of the prestige dramas that we've come to, you know, appreciate, you know, that have entered the cultural lexicon involve male characters or center around male characters mm-hmm. who are sociopaths. Mm-hmm. Essentially, Tony Soprano, Don yeah. Draper, mm-hmm. to an extent, um, Dexter, fucking um, Barry, you Breaking know, the bad. list goes on. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so now you have a black female character, mm-hmm. right, who shares, I guess, some of those same characteristics. And, you know, as, as I was watching the show, the character that she reminded me of the most isn't actually from the screen. Have you read um, Raven Lalani's um, Luster? Yes, yes, yes. 
That's a really interesting reference. Yeah. 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 And I, I'm just thinking of these Black women who you have a spectrum, I think, of expected behavior, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, when we see depictions of us on screen, even if it's it's the depiction of a character doing some fuck shit like a Molly from Insecure, it, it still exists mm-hmm. within the spectrum mm-hmm. of behavior that we come to, you know, I, 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 I guess, anticipate, right? And mm-hmm. so with Dre and also with, I forgot the character's name and luster, they existed outside of that mm-hmm. spectrum. And I think mm-hmm. some of the criticism or some of the reactions, not even necessarily the criticism, mm-hmm. but some of the reactions to the show are based off of these characters existing outside of the spectrum of expected behavior. Mm-hmm. When you were creating a character like this, who were you thinking of specifically? Or were there any specific people? You, or were you just trying to create like a character based off of themes or yeah. points you wanted to hit? Um, I mean, I don't think we ever, you know, it wasn't like a name of like, this is specifically who this person is modeled after. I think it was more about um, like some of the movies um, Donald had us watch before the room. We watched... Um, well, this isn't a movie, but the Netflix series Don't Fuck With Cats, which was, um, you know, sort of about all the social media stuff. Um, We watched Under the Skin, which I think is a really important reference. Um, Scarlett Johansson's character in that movie, like, is an alien and Mm -hmm. is very weird. And the word alien is a word we used a lot in the writer's room when we were talking about Dre. Um, And so for me, it wasn't so much about Like, I think a serial killer, which is already, like, a rare thing. There really are not a lot of serial killers, like, in the history of Earth. And I would imagine that serial killers have something in common where, like, your brain is fucked in a way and you were, like, methodically murdering people. Mm -hmm. And so it was less to me about she's a serial killer because she's a Black woman. And it felt more like a serial killer who happens to be a Black woman and the texture of just what that would look like. So the way that a Black woman would be a serial killer to me, for me, the more interesting and the more fun part was like, why is she killing people? And it's like, okay, she's killing people over a pop star, which is maybe not what the white guy would be doing. And she's, you know, like she's in Houston, she's in Atlanta, she's in like Black cities, And seeing the way that, like, that would manifest in a Black woman, to me, is more interesting than, like, someone becoming a serial killer specifically around being a Black woman. Because I'm like, I have to believe serial killers of all races have more in common with each other. You know what I mean? I'm like, that's already, like, that through line has got to be more specific to just, like, the chemistry of their brains than where they grew up and, like, and how they're being treated. Because that's a crazy thing to be. And not a lot of people are that. And I guess that that's a perfect segue to my next question, because I feel like there, there's an overrepresent. We talk about representation. There's an overrepresentation yeah. of serial killers in yes. pop culture <laughs> and in yeah. popular discourse. So why do you think we are so fascinated by them? I mean, I have my own suspicions. I mean, there's there again, mm-hmm. I think there's a fascination that's based off of fear because we don't understand what yeah. makes these people yeah. tick. It, it kind of reminds me. I used to be scared to death of of lightning. Like mm-hmm. I got caught in a bad thunderstorm when I was like six or seven years old. And so I ended up reading all the books, getting all the almanacs. I would buy, I would have my dad mm-hmm. buy the USA Today just so I could look at the, the weather page on the back. And I became yeah. obsessed to the point where I wanted to be a meteorologist. Mm-hmm. Because I needed to know as much as possible about the weather when so it wouldn't scare <laughs> yeah. me. And so I, I wonder if that's a part of this obsession that we have culturally with sociopathy, with psychopathy. But then a part of me also thinks it could be envy, where not necessarily the envy, not like we don't want to go out and start killing niggas, although I'm sure we all get that <laughs> compulsion sometimes too, but the ability to kind of live in that way where we can do these sorts of things like even if we're not actually doing them where we have the capacity to do them and Mm -hmm. not necessarily feel the same way a quote-unquote normal person average person or whatever might feel um that that part of it that part of the psychology might be and i'll admit to feeling some a a smidgen of envy Mm -hmm. 
about that, about being able to just yeah. do a thing and move on and not, you know, and not be neurotic. Right. Well, but the thing is, your ability not to do that is because you're not deeply mentally unwell. You know, like, mm-hmm. I think, like, I, it's interesting because I would not say, like, me personally, I'm not, like, super into serial killers. I think on a very simplistic level, if we're talking about the depiction of serial killers in television and movies, just as a narrative, it is more interesting to watch someone who is, like, killing a lot of people if you're trying to tell a long story. Mm -hmm. So some of it is just like, there's a lot of things that like, I'll talk to people a lot and, you know, they'll be like, oh, I have an idea for a TV show. And it's like mostly just about like their life. And I'm like, okay, the thing is, you're not as interesting as you think you are. So like, just no one is. So like most of the things that you're watching on TV, you're watching people that are atypical, that are exceptional or whatever, because generally like that's going to be more entertaining right Mm -hmm. like olivia pope is not like a regular person and that's kind of the whole point um and even to me like even with a show like atlanta you're like okay well paperboy becomes like a rapper in the second half of that show and he becomes like a less regular person because that's kind of what stories at a certain point like many of them require so i think some of it is just like in terms of creating the shows is like it's an interesting story to tell whether or not is it is a common story. Um, I think the other part of it might also get into the true crime stuff, mm-hmm. which is its own. I have my own, like, not very flattering opinions about true crime fans. Like, I, you know, I've watched some of it and I'm just like, this is fucked in a way. Um, and this is clearly about um, a fear that, like, isn't the main thing you should be worried about. Like um, of all the things I'm worried about, like being murdered by a stranger is low on my list because um, that doesn't happen a lot. And then it's like even being murdered by someone, I, you know, it's just like, it doesn't happen as much as people seem to think that it does. So I think, you know, and with episode six, which is our mockumentary true crime episode, like we talked about these true crime shows and that kind of obsession with it and it feeling I think similar to the same kind of intense obsession with like celebrity we kind of touched on this a little bit up top but episode six is basically the ending of the series yeah it tells you the ending yeah it tells you the ending it tells you exactly how the story is going to play out while seven shows you right Mm -hmm. it shows you exactly what happens up until I guess the last scene which is obviously in Dre's head um the true crime thing is something that always struck me as, particularly when you think of the demographic that one is most interested in creating it and most interested in consuming it, right? It's something that exists to replicate an anxiety that they don't have about their yes. existence. Yes. It's like, you know what, they don't necessarily have to deal with the same dangers or the same, you know, all, all the fuck shit that you yeah. have to deal with while existing while Black. And so you invent you invent fears. Yeah. yeah. If you're not worried that a cop pulling you over could end your life, or if that is a concern that you have, then day to day, you already have enough anxiety and fear that you're like moving through the world with. Mm-hmm. If that fear, if the possibility of that does not exist for you, then like, you know, it's, I don't quite understand. And I would never like proclaim to understand the pathology behind that. Like I don't, you know, I don't know because that's not me, but, um, but yeah, but I think also like, to be honest, like I remember when, like when I first met with Janine and Donald to write on the show, Donald was like explaining to me, cause he, he would, he said this phrase post-truth and I was like, I didn't really know what he's talking about, to be honest, when he first said it to me, but I was like, I'll probably figure it out. That sounds Trumpian. Yeah. I was like post-truth. And then when he when he was talking about this episode, episode six, it was like, oh, we're going to see the real people. And I remember it was a thing in the room where we were all like the real people. Like we did not really know what he was talking about. And then he came in and explained it. And I was like, oh, and thinking of something like the people versus OJ, where you're like, oh, you've been watching the people versus OJ. Right. Like as a viewer of Swarm, you've been watching the people versus OJ. And episode six is like, the documentary about O.J. Simpson. Mm -hmm. And then you're returning to like the series, um, which I think is like a really cool idea. And I think even, you know, I know that kind of, there's probably other storytellers who would have put that episode at the end 
that would have been episode seven rather than six. Um, but for the reasons that you're saying, like, I think it is cool that it's episode six because you don't realize it's the end of the story until you finish seven. It also grounds the story and it, and it makes the story, I guess, a bit more. Um, I, I don't want to say that it was elusive before, but it makes it a bit more tactile. Yeah. Right. Where it's like, OK, this these things are it it, it kind of extrapolates, pulls out. And it's like, OK, this shit that's happening in the story has had some real world consequence. Mm-hmm. And there is an actual person that is on the case. Mm-hmm. And there is an actual reason why Dre has become the person that that she is. Right. There, mm-hmm. there are these actual factors, mm-hmm. social, economic, environmental factors that created a person like this, right? Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you also about, and these are things I'm mostly curious about, right? As someone who has somewhat of a knowledge of how things work, but not really in an industry. Mm-hmm. So you're a writer. Now, what was your official title on the, on the show? I was a supervising producer. All right, supervising producer. Right. And so, yeah, what is the distinction between, I guess, staff writer, supervising producer, yeah. and supervising producer, and also, you know, the episode that you were in, you know, you were listed as, oh, you wrote yeah. this episode. So what's the distinction, yeah, like, yeah. what's the distinction between that and the rest of the stuff? So the way that uh, television works um is you come in like your first show you come in as a staff writer Mm -hmm. generally and the titles really are coinciding with the amount of money you're making in your experience so you come in as a staff writer and then it's story editor then executive story editor and then like something super like i don't remember them all right now and you keep going and like executive producer and like showrunner that's like the top that's the highest Mm -hmm. one so for me it was supervising producer because of the experience that i've had because i've written on other shows Um, It can also come with other responsibilities. Like generally, um, the last show I was just on, you know, I was covering set um, for our showrunners. So I was going down to Atlanta and like supervising set because of the level that I'm at, which you wouldn't necessarily send only a staff writer to do that. Although, um, but yeah, so it's really just like those titles are about your experience and like sort of generally you probably take on a little bit more responsibility, you know, like the, the higher you go um, with the episode that I'm in. So, so that was the episode I wrote. And um, when I was writing it, I remember, so it's set at this party, right. That's based off of like a real party that happened. Well, and I remember Donald, Kara, Kara, oh, yeah. before you continue, can you explain the difference yeah. between writing an episode and writing on an episode? So here's the thing. When you're in a writer's room, everyone is contributing to everything. Mm-hmm. So even if my name isn't on episode two as a writer, jokes that I wrote, ideas that I had, all of us will be in the episode. It is very collaborative. Mm-hmm. And you break, which is called, it's calling breaking the story, which is basically just like figuring out what happens. You do that as a room. You do that together. And then generally someone will write the script and then you come back and you give notes and thoughts. Um, so... For, you know, with Swarm, like, Janine was really, really involved with a lot of the episodes. So, like, you see both of our names because we both wrote, mm. you know what I mean? Like, we're both, we both wrote the episode. Um, so it's not really, like, we all contributed to every single episode of the show. But you generally kind of own one particular episode um, a season and in more traditional rooms. So if you go back to, like, TV shows that are 22 episodes a season... Like a showrunner does not have time to write every single one of those episodes. So like, that's why you have a writer's room of people who write the episodes, but every single episode as a room, you're coming up with things, you're, you're pitching jokes, you're Mm -hmm. pitching ideas and you're doing it collaboratively. Yeah. So there's, so there's that. Um, So episode three, so it's like set at this party. And I remember Donald was like, oh, you should write yourself into this episode. And I was like, I wasn't at this party, like in real life. And he's like, no, but he's like, I believe you were there. So I was like, okay. So then I, so I wrote myself in to the episode. Like that's literally how I wrote myself in. And so you, you know, you do multiple drafts. Like it takes a while before like you get to the final thing that like, okay, we're going to go shoot this. Mm-hmm. So each draft and like, you know, I did some updates and Janine does a rewrite and Donald contributes and whatever. And I kept thinking like, oh, they're going to cut this part. Cause it like requires me to like get on, you know, like they have to like, I have to go act. 
And I remember Janine was like, no, I think it's going to stay in. And then we were doing the table read and we like got to my line. And I remember Donald was like, Kara, say your line. I was like, oh, we're like doing this. And then Janine was like, yeah, no, we're doing it. And then I get an email from the casting department and they're like, um, so we're flying you down to Atlanta to like shoot your little, you know, your thing. And, um, Adama Ibo, who directed that episode and, and, um, a few other episodes this season, including the finale. She's amazing. Um, she was, I was also like, oh, this is, you know, once you're editing, this is going to cut. She was like, we were never going to cut you. Um, so that was, that was sort of like a fun Easter eggy thing where I am playing myself. That's the other thing. It's like, I am playing Kara Brown. Mm-hmm. So like, this is a world where like, I am at this function as like myself, the writer Kara Brown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I mean it's believable. I mean it's a it's a after party in L.A. You live in L.A. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you, you could have yeah, you yeah. could have been there. Well, it was also I have been at events and parties with people who you know were sort of fictionalizing. So like I remember we were supposed to do a thing together. Yeah, a couple years ago, and you ditched me, but you got a last minute invite to a megastars party. Yes, I would have ditched me too. I remember when I told you I because I felt I was like Damon. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I'm not flaky. I was like, Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of things I would like straight up ditch somebody for. But I was like, I got to go to this party. Yeah, it wasn't. (laughs) um, He gave me a heads up. Yeah. It wasn't like a ditch or a ghost where I was like, where the fuck is Kara? What what, what happened? But it was more you explained it. Yeah. And I remember telling my wife and she's like, yeah, nigga, I would have ditched you too. (laughs) Like, fuck fuck you. (laughs) Fuck out of here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah. It's, it's, you know, I was curious about, I guess, your role and, you know, yeah. and I guess in acting and staying the line on the show. I was wondering if you wrote the line, it was like, yo, I got to fucking say this shit. Nah, it's me. I am the one who needs to say this, but it was. It was not my idea, to be very clear. <laughs> to be very clear, it was not my idea. But, um, you know, I showed up, I uh, qualified for SAG, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I did the whole thing. But yeah, but I think like that's kind of. You know, Stephen Glover, who's Donald's brother, plays Cachet, who's Nyjah's husband. Like, it was, we had fun with doing this. And so I hope that people are also having fun with it. And I know that, like, you know, it's the internet. So things just get very intense very quickly. And I think, to me, it's been this, like, kind of campy fun show and like it was fun to make it so um i would hope that it would continue as people watch it kara brown thank you up next is damon hates the section of the show where i talk about shit that i hate because i hate a lot of shit hear that It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. So I'm going to keep this short because I like to get places quickly and you'll figure out why. 
speed limits are bullshit. And not every speed limit, all right? Speed limits within a city obviously exist for a reason, for safety. You don't want motherfuckers going 60 miles per hour in a residential area. That makes sense. There are kids, squirrels, all that shit that you don't want to hit. That's fine. What I'm talking about is on the highway, particularly stretches of highway where you have multiple lanes, it's flat, you don't have the crazy terrain, and there's no fucking reason why any stretch of highway that has those characteristics should have a limit on how fast you could drive. Like, I always feel like your license should get renewed every 15 years. There's no way on earth that motherfuckers who got their license at 16 should be driving under the same conditions at 55 or under the same presumption that they know all the fucking rules of the road, right? So anyway, speed limits should not exist. There should be a lane where you should go as fast as you want to. The cars that are built today are equipped for that. I mean, there's fucking Jettas where you could be going 95 miles per hour and feel like you're going 50. Altimas, fucking SUVs that are built where you can go as fast as you want. And again, the problem with driving fast isn't necessarily the speed, it's that people are not focused. And so if you had this sort of structure in place where one, you could get a special license, and two, if you're caught texting while driving or eating while driving or anything that people do while driving, while you're driving that fast, you lose your license. No points, no nothing. I would take that for the privilege of being able to go 130 miles per hour, <laughs> right? Because I feel like if my car can go that fast, why do they build these fucking cars that can go that fast and that are equipped? These cars are not shaking. The steering wheel is not shaking when you go that fast anymore. My first truck, a Mercury Mountaineer, it was 2000. It looked like a Ford Explorer. People would get disappointed when I told them, no, it was a Mercury Mountaineer. I don't know what the fuck is wrong with people. Anyway, when that car would go on over 61, it would start convulsing. It would literally would do the Harlem Shake on the road. But the car that I have now doesn't do that. And the cars that most people drive today do not do that. So again, why do we still have speed limits, right? Or at least why don't we have a lane that is specifically designated for people who want to go as fast as they fucking want to and have the technology and have the license where they're able to do that? Why does this not exist? Can someone tell me? Up next, Steer Damon with New York Times bestselling author, Vasa Ekby. Morgan, the producer, what do we got this week? This week's question is from someone who wants to learn how to repress their rage. Dear Damon, my husband is a great man. He's white, I'm black, half black, but I identify as black. My husband's parents are from the South and they've never accepted me. They didn't come to our wedding because they don't believe in interracial marriage. We're now five years after our wedding. We have a 10-month-old baby who's white presenting. And for the first time in 10 years, we've gotten an invite to visit them. I think it's great that my husband can finally introduce his wife and kids to his family. Everyone deserves that. But underneath, I'm sick to my stomach because I'm giving this family the ability to have all the joy of having a grandchild while suppressing their racism. I want to support my husband, so how do I not compromise myself and my ideals to do the right thing for the man I love? Joining us today, the homie, Bossy Ickby. Hi, David. How you doing today? I'm good. I'm very good. How are you? I'm good. You know, Bossy, New York Times bestselling author, iconic deaf poet. Iconic poet. I didn't even have to qualify it by saying deaf poet, although that was my introduction to you. I was watching you on deaf poetry back in like 2001. That was 100 years ago. But again, you were one of the recurring people who I remembered and I look forward to. Huh? That's nice. You know what I mean? This was back then. So again, it was a pleasure to have you with us today. It's good to be here. So this question, <laughs> when I was reading this question out loud, I started laughing a little bit because I'm hearing the question. It's like, okay, my in-law's family is racist. They accepted our son, but only because he came out light-skinned. And I'm wondering, did Meghan Markle <laughs> write this? I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking the same thing. 
I was like, Megan, come on. <laughs> That's Megan's Markle secretly. You have a whole documentary. You don't need to write in. <laughs> secretly writing under pseudonyms to Washington Post advice columnists. Like, is she doing that? <laughs> I mean, whatever it takes. I was thinking the whole time you were reading, I thought you were going to be like, psych. This is it. This is, this is <laughs> Megan Markle. <laughs> right? That's too funny. You know what? There are people who believe that some of these questions that advice columnists receive are made up, right? That someone is just inventing the question based off of like a real life scenario or just some ridiculous, absurd situation that they created out of thin air. And so perhaps someone did create a question based off of, (laughs) you know, Meghan Markle and uh, what, which prince is she married to? What's his name? Was it Andrew? Harry. Harry, Harry, Prince Harry. The good prince. The good prince. All right, so this question, this woman who is not Meghan Markle. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly has these racist in-laws. And like whenever I hear a circumstance like this, I'm going to keep it a buck with you, Bossy. I don't think I've ever loved someone enough to marry them if their parents hated me. Yeah. And I'm saying that as a a married man, but like if I had met my then girlfriend's family after a month of dating and they were like, fuck this nigga, (laughs) I don't ever want you to bring him around again. I don't know if that relationship would have continued. When I hear these stories about these people in interracial relationships where the black person um, who's married to the white person and the white family just doesn't accept them won't let them won't let them in the house on Thanksgiving. <laughs> and allow me to to correct myself really quickly because I I think of race in a black white binary and that's a product of me just going to Pittsburgh, where race here is pretty much a black white binary. I mean, we do have populations of other, but it's not as large or robust as it is in other cities. And so I had to remind myself that when I think of race, when I think of interracial relationships particularly, I have to consider other cultures, like other combinations that are possible. But anyway, in in this particular instance, I'm talking about the specific dynamics that arise when you're talking about a Black person and a white person in a marriage. And again, I don't want to minimize or make light of anyone's experience or anyone's love, right? But I just, that part of the relationship is something I just don't understand. No, I agree, especially if you're close to your family. So if you're close to your family enough for the absence of them to be a significant vacuum in your life, then I would think that what they think, number one, might be close to what you think. So I'm I'm not leaving husband off the hook. That's the part, too. If the family hates you that much, how much other family does the husband have in him, right? Yeah. Especially if he if he's willing to go back, like I can understand, and I don't agree with this. We 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 see this on Twitter all the time, where people are like, "Stop talking to your family, cut off grandma." They do all that, and I don't necessarily agree with that. But if it's enough for them to be completely unable to even do their best to try, and you're still close to them somehow, because I feel like they've been talking, I feel like you're still sending pictures, I'm, I feel like you're still doing something. That makes me question you. Because I know personally, I'm close to my family. So if my family, I couldn't bring somebody around that couldn't be around because being close to my family is so important to me. Like on holidays, like every single holiday, you could be Black, but if you can't fit into the dynamic, that's a problem for me because you're making me think about how I'm going to have to choose between my family and you eventually. And I've known my family longer. (laughs) (laughs) In circumstances like this, I'm just deeply skeptical of the person who comes from a family like this also because it's like, you didn't just discover yesterday that your family hates niggers. Like, you have known this. Yeah. And yet you still decide to get a Black girlfriend or whatever and bring her around to the family knowing that you are potentially putting her in, in a position where she could get harmed. Yeah. Right. If not physically, then like emotionally, spiritually by, you know, getting rejected like this. Mm -hmm. All that being said, I think this issue is something that I may be unable to be objective about this. And I'm supposed to be objective when answering these questions. Somewhat objective. Objective to a point. But 
I just don't see how a relationship like that can can exist. But these relationships do exist. And there are people who are able to find love. You know, Romeo and Juliet, I guess, is, you know, the most famous example. Yeah, they died. Right. They did die. (laughs) But they're an example of families who hated each other. Right. But they still got together, you know, and died. died. Maybe that's the best example. But but it does happen. But I can't imagine marrying into a family where I know that I'm hated. And I can't imagine bringing someone around my family if I know that my family ain't going to fuck with them. And won't fuck with them for reasons that are completely out of their control. So it's not like they laugh weird or they've got bad table manners or something. Like, it's something that they fundamentally can't change. But here, here's the thing, too, and this is why I don't think it's Meghan Markle. <laughs> my question in a situation like that, especially if my partner's parents are so vocally racist, like, they're not even, like, fake microaggression racist. Like, they're, like, for real, for real racist enough not to attend the wedding. My question is, Am I a get back? Am I a long puberty tantrum? Like, those are the things that I wouldn't be able to reconcile. Like, I wouldn't be able to reconcile whether or not you're just having an adolescent moment, like some punk rock, always ready to piss your parents off type thing. I don't believe in love, so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. With Barry to Lee, (laughs) right there. (laughs) I just don't think it's ever enough. Like, saying, oh, I'm going to go through this because I love is just not enough. For me, and I think maybe it's because like it's a whole bipolar thing, but like in my rational, medicated, therapied mind, it just doesn't seem like an emotion is enough to like go through a bunch of shit for. Okay, so you don't believe in love? No, that's, that's a new discovery. <laughs> okay, when did you, I guess, uh, have that realization that I don't believe in love? That you don't believe in love. Well, let me let me clarify what I mean by don't believe in love. I don't believe love conquers all, contrary to all the songs. I don't believe love conquers all. And I think because, you know, joking with serious, because I live with an illness that makes emotions so outsized, that are so huge in ways that make me feel as though I'm a victim to my emotions or I let my emotions happen to me as opposed to being an active part of it. So for me, when it comes to like love or even hate, any extreme emotion, I have to, from this vantage point, again, as someone who is a healthy person, have to really sit and dissect it and say, okay, am I feeling this way because of that? Am I feeling this way? Like I have to really get in there. And as a creative, it's hard, but like scientifically, mathematically, you know, dissect and divide and make sure that what I'm actually feeling is what it is that's been presented as. So in that regard, I don't see anything that passes that test for me. Mm -hmm. Even down to like friendships. Like I've stopped saying, oh, I love you to my friends because I realize the size of that and what it means. And I don't think I've ever meant it. Oh, I sound like a terrible person, but I'm not a terrible person. I'm just, I've just gotten to a point in my life where I have to be very, very careful about the things I allow myself to feel because I know that they're dangerous to me. So I've made a decision not to get involved in things that make my life feel more out of control than I can. I need to call my therapist. Well, I mean, language matters though, right? And so if if the way that you understand love to exist, if that does not encapsulate situations that you've been in. If, if that's not an accurate way of describing them, then that's just, it just doesn't work. You see what love is supposed to be, right? And you're saying to yourself, well, the way that love made this person do this thing or the way that love affected this person so much, it just doesn't have that effect on me. So what I'm feeling, it could be something strong, something real, something tactile, but it's not it's not love the way I've come to understand it existing. I'm wondering what we should tell this woman because, you know, her question, basically she wants to give her husband this joy of his parents meeting their grandchild for the first time. But at the same time, she's like, fuck these niggas. Like, I don't, I don't want to fuck with them. I don't want to deal with them. Fuck these non-niggas. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> and her question is, how do I not compromise myself and my ideals and do the right thing for the man I love? I mean, this this is not like a comfortable thing to hear, but I think I think this person has already made some negotiations. I think this person has already compromised somewhat. And so like if you want to continue to be married to this man and to this family and you would like for this man to have a relationship with his parents then i guess that's just what you have to do and you just have to find a way to be okay with it and i'm not saying this is something this person should be okay with but i feel like her decision has already been made she's just trying to feel better about it and i don't know if there's a path for that she made a point to emphasize that she's biracial. And she made a point to emphasize that their child is white passing. So what I think is that there is more than just this question about her racist in-laws. I think it's a question about why she wasn't automatically accepted. And I think that it's more about the fact that they're rejecting her, even though she's half white, than it is about all the other things. I think she wants it to be about the other things, and I think that's valid, but I think that it seeds from and it starts from the rejection of her. And I think that going back to what we're saying about if you're able to marry into, I feel like if you're able to marry into a family like that, there's a part of you that feels like you're the exception. And I feel like, and so I think it is Meghan Markle, I feel like she thinks that she was the <laughs> exception. She wasn't the exception. And there's a there's a level of hurt feelings. I wonder what her family is like, the white side of her family, whether she thought that this was the thing that would solidify the other half of her, I guess, or justify or rationalize the other half of her and what she wants from them. So I wonder if she needs to thoroughly examine why this is a question for her and why she stepped into it in the first place. And then she can answer that, all that other stuff. You're right, she's already compromised and I feel like that's different. But I think that even if she was to make this decision, it still wouldn't answer the initial issue that she's had with herself and, and the situation she chose, in my opinion, allegedly. No, 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 I think you're right. I think that's it. And again, I think you made a great point about her. Not every biracial woman does this, but there are many who view their biracial status as currency. Right. And so being in a circumstance where you being light skinned does not matter, you're still black and we're still not fucking with you because of that, those three drops of blackness you got in you. I could see that being something that is like an equilibrium shifting sort of jarring experience for someone to have, particularly someone who has, you know, who's used to being special in a way, right? Being considered special. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you that she has to unpack, you know, what is it that drew her to, you know, this sort of relationship, marrying into this family. And, and also, you know, these feelings of rejection that she's feeling, are they necessarily about her being rejected by the family because she's Black? Or is it because they're rejecting the status that you believe that you had. And these are two separate things. They could be difficult to parse them out, but those are two completely separate things. Is your world crashing down because your in-laws are racist or is your world crashing down because you're not special anymore? Bossy, it was great having you on. Thank you for this. Where can people find you if they're trying to get you and they want to get to you? First of all, this is a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Um, I am Bossy World, B-A-S-S-E-Y, World on all platforms. And and please, when you get a chance, go cop Bossy's memoir. I'm telling the truth, but I'm lying. It is just a great, 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 great book. It was a New York Times bestseller. It's probably one of the best memoirs uh, to be released in like the last decade. And, and again, it's brilliant. It's banging. Go cop it. Bossy, thank you. Thank you. Again, just want to thank Kara Brown, Bossy Ekby for coming through. Thank you all for coming through and listening again. Stuff with Damon Young. Remember, listen, subscribe for free on Spotify. Also, if you have any questions about anything, any topic, there's no topic that is too obscure 
too mundane, hit me up at daredamon.crooked.com. All right, y'all. See you next week. Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me, Damon Young. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Kendra James and Meredith Herringer. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing, sound, and mastering by Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme music and score by Taka Yazuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. And from Gimlet and Spotify, our executive producers are Crystal Halls-Dressler, Lauren Silverman, Nicole Beamster-Bauer, and Neil Drumming. From Gimlet and Spotify, our executive producers are Crystal Halls-Dressler, Lauren Silverman, Nicole Beamster-Bauer, Neil Drumming, and Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Leslie Guang. Thank you.